What no man has imagined, God has for us prepared. Today we'll get a bit of a taste of that in the opening words of the Gospel of Luke. We'll be beginning a sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. So we'll be reading this morning from Luke chapter 1, the verses 1 to 4. And you'll be able to find that on page 1176 of your pew Bible. Page 1176. The Word of God. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what are your first thoughts when you read the opening words of a book of the Bible? So many of them begin with an introduction talking about who the author was, who the book was for, or the occasion for which the book was written. Do you take the time to think about them? Or do you, like so many of us, pass by them thinking, that's over, now let's get to the good stuff. There's nothing wrong with wanting to get to the narrative parts that is of greater interest to many of us. But that shouldn't stop us from taking the time to reflect on the background of a book, to reflect on the history of a book. Over the next number of months, we will, Lord willing, be working our way through a series on this book, the Gospel of Luke. Since that's the case, it's good before we do that to get a bit of a bird's eye view and take some time to reflect on exactly what it is we're studying. To think about what the purpose was, who it was for, and how it should affect us today. This means that today we'll be spending a little bit more time in background study. By the time, we've done working, by the time we're done working our way through this introduction, hopefully we'll have a bit of an idea of what God is teaching us in the big picture of this book as we prepare to settle in for the course of it. So today we'll be doing this under the following theme and points. The Gospel of Luke. Under the following theme, the Gospel of Luke, an orderly account. Let's take a moment to look at those opening words of our text one more time. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of these things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account. In these opening words here, we read that many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative. What's Luke referring to here? Well, he's pointing his readers to the other Gospels. 
Many people have suggested that he even used the Gospel of Mark as a foundation for part of his work, that Mark is one of the eyewitnesses that he's referring to. But if that's truly the case, that there are other Gospels, why is Luke writing a new account all of his own? Isn't one enough? Have you ever wondered, kids, have you ever wondered why we have four Gospels instead of just one? The gospel accounts are like witnesses in a courtroom setting. Each of the authors had their own background. They had their own experiences of life. And because of that, each of them has their own view on a series of events. Kids, think about it for a moment. In, in lines of um, your family seeing an accident. Your dad might recognize that it was a Honda Civic that ran into a Lamborghini Diablo. And he talks about the importance of maintaining the brakes on your car. Mom might not have as much interest in what kind of cars they are, but she knows that it was a a beat-up white car that hit a really sleek-looking red car and almost involved your family's car too, and talks about the importance of protecting your family. Your older sister might not remember the accident itself so much, but she remembers much more clearly than the others the words that the drivers shouted at each other and talks about keeping your head even in times of stress. And you, you remember the feeling of being tossed back and forth in the back seat as a reminder to whoever you tell the story that it's important to wear a seatbelt. Now, you're all describing the same event, and all of your accounts are different, and the messages that you bring with those accounts are different. All of you have different things that you see as important in the story, and so you want to highlight that. But even though all of these stories are different, and they have different things that you bring up, all of these stories are significant, and they're true. And all of them have that same accident at their core. That's what we see with the gospel messages as well. To understand what the messages that they bring are and why they're important, we need to see them in the background of the historical event, against the background of that historical event. To understand what perspective the gospel of Luke has, it can be helpful to take a step back and look at the event of the life, death, and work of Jesus Christ and what the different Gospels say about them and how Luke is different. Once we have done that, we can see what truly makes the Gospel of Luke unique. And with that, we can get a better idea of what God is teaching His people through this particular Gospel from start to finish. So let's take a moment to see Luke within the broader context of the Gospels as a whole. Who were these authors? What was the purpose that they were written? And what did they hope to accomplish? Once we see that, we'll be able to see what's so special in Luke. Why we needed more than one Gospel to be written. So we'll begin with Matthew. The author of this Gospel is, of course, the disciple Matthew. While we don't know where it was written, we do know that Matthew was writing for a Jewish audience. 
The main point of Matthew is to answer the question for the Jews, who is Jesus? Now, there were many suggestions of who Jesus was that were floating around. But Matthew wanted to make it absolutely clear to his readers that Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. That Jesus was the Messiah and that he was the Savior of God's people. This is the reason why, through the book of Matthew, you have him so frequently referring back to passages in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. Matthew puts a lot of emphasis on truths like Jesus' identity as the virgin-born Emmanuel, and on Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah who was to come. And we see this most clearly evident in Matthew 16, the verses 13 and following. There Jesus asks his disciples, saying, What do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they, say, they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So you can see here again, the perspective is one of the Jews looking on. These would have been names that were significant for the Jews. And they saw Jesus as being a fulfillment of well, maybe he's one of those forerunner characters. Maybe he's Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets come back. So then he asks them the question, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then after that, he commands them to tell that nobody uh, is told by them that he is the Christ. What we can see here is for the Jews that Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy. He wasn't just any prophet. He wasn't Elijah. He wasn't Jonah. He wasn't any prophesied forerunner. No, Jesus was the one that the Jews had been looking ahead to for centuries. He was their anointed one, which is what Christ literally means if you translate it. The one whom God had promised to the Jews, whom he would deliver them through. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He was the Christ. This makes the perspective of Matthew incredibly important in, in the broader scope of redemptive history. That the broader picture of God's redeeming work in history from the beginning of time right to the end. Because through Matthew we can see how Jesus Christ was in each of those pages and how all of those scriptures point ahead to him. Matthew's gospel is the pinnacle of God's revelation from Old Testament to the New, as he ties it all together. So that's Matthew, but what about Mark? Mark is a gospel that's intended for a Gentile, that is a non-Jewish audience. You can see this in the way that he frequently explains Jewish customs to the readers, and he doesn't use much in the way of Jewish terms. He doesn't want to confuse his readers. Mark is the shortest gospel, 
He wants to bring forward a, a clear and a basic account of Jesus Christ and moves the narrative along at a fast pace. And you can see this in how frequently he uses the word immediately. This happened, and then immediately that happened. Jesus got off the boat, and immediately a demon came out of the tombs to confront him. The author wants to move the story along quickly. But more than that, you can see that Mark is pushing a message of discipleship and service. It's also a message of Christ's authority over all things, his right to be able to command your allegiance as his disciple. He speaks about his right to save you and to the, his right to declare to all whom he wants that they are saved. Mark is saying to his readers that to be a Christian means to be a follower of this Jesus Christ, a follower of this person who has authority. And it's not simply enough to stand at the sidelines. You need to be involved and involved in service to those around. One of the key verses here is found in Mark 10, verse 45. And this marks the reason for Jesus' coming to earth. He says there, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He had the authority to be able to do that. For the Gentile readers, this gospel reaches its pinnacle with the declaration of the Gentile leaders of this the Gentile leader of the soldiers, the ones who were gathered around the cross. He sees Jesus being crucified. He looks up to him hanging there on the cross and he sees all the events that are unfolding around, the earthquakes, the darkness. And he says, surely this man was the son of God. When you, as a Gentile, are following Jesus Christ as his disciple, you are following the Son of God. The Son of God who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the message that Luke wants to pass on. Now, the next gospel is Luke. But since we're going to deal with that in a moment, we'll skip that and move straight on to the gospel of John. John is unique among the gospels. In John, there's no Christmas story. There's no background of Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, earthly life before his ministry. There's definitely a background of his earthly ministry. It talks about his involvement in the creation of the world, and it jumps straight into his introduction by John the Baptist. That's a different John, not the John who's the author of this book. The Gospel of John was written for a mixed Jewish and Gentile audience, the original destination being Ephesus, but intended to be spread throughout the Christian world. So why was John written? We get a taste of why already in what is probably the most famous verse of the Bible, John 3, verse 16. There we read that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but shall have eternal life. Here we can see 
that John's plan is that everyone reading this for the first time may be persuaded that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God and that they may have saving faith in Him and have eternal life. He's not just pointing to the past, pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of historic prophecy, but he's looking ahead to the future. And we see this pattern coming again and again through this gospel. That group after group comes to know Jesus and have faith. The Jews, the Samaritans, and many others. Tried to take a highlighter sometime going through John, highlighting or underlining every occurrence of the word believe. And you'll see how this pattern shapes up throughout the course of this book. John 20 verse 31 is where the point of this gospel reaches its high point. There we read, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John is saying by these words, you've you've read the book. You've seen the proof I've laid out for you over the last however many thousand words. Will you now believe and share in the life that we're granted in his name? There's a real evangelistic thrust to that gospel. So now we have one gospel aimed at a Jewish audience that declares Jesus as the Jewish Messiah who fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. We have another aimed towards a more Gentile audience that calls him the Son of God with the authority to call you to discipleship. We have another for a local church but aimed at the whole Christian world and all who come into contact with those Christians, that declares him to be the Christ, the Son of God, who alone can give you eternal life. And now, last of all, we have the Gospel of Luke. What sets the Gospel of Luke apart from the other Gospels? Each of the other Gospels comes with a message in mind. They come to a specific group of people and say, this is who Christ is, and this is why he should be important to you in particular. Luke, on the other hand, is taking a different perspective. He's not trying to persuade someone, as these other Gospels are. They are written with the intent to persuade the various readers, the groups to whom they were sent. But Luke is writing to a man who already is persuaded about the importance of the gospel. He's writing to the man whose name is given as Theophilus. Now, some have suggested that Theophilus wasn't an individual, that he's a large group of people that commissioned this work, and that he's writing to them collectively under, the pen, under a name, Theophilus. But this is actually doubtful because of the way that Luke addresses him. Luke addresses him as a man who is someone of high rank. He says, most excellent Theophilus, as he writes. Elsewhere translated as most honorable. This isn't mere flattery. The only other place that we find someone referred to in that way by this author 
is found in his other book, the book of Acts. And there, Roman governors are being addressed. So we don't know who Theophilus was, but we do know that he was a person of some importance. Now, as the name Theophilus means friend of God or lover of God, we're not sure if this was his real name, a name that he took on after he was converted or just a name that Luke gave to a man who supported his work financially to protect him by hiding his real name. But at the end of the day, it becomes clear that Luke intended his book, while he was addressing it to this one particular person, that Luke intended his book for a much wider audience. And because of that, who Luke wrote for isn't quite the main point. It's why he wrote the gospel that's of interest. Luke is, both the, uh, Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And we know who he is from the fact that the early church recognizes him as the author, but also because Paul talks about Luke as his travel companion in some of his letters. And because on these voyages, while they're traveling from point A to point B, Luke writes that we traveled from one place to another. We also know from these letters that he's a doctor, a person who has a more scientific interest, someone who would have been a member of one of the more highly educated parts of the Roman world. Now, Dr. Luke, as we noted before, isn't trying to write his letter first and foremost to persuade anyone of anything. Instead, he writes, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding, and by perfect he means a complete understanding, a full understanding, perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know with certainty the things in which you were instructed. Luke is aiming at certainty here. He isn't writing to Theophilus saying, take my word for this. He's writing to Theophilus and to all those who are listening. Here is an orderly account that I'm laying out for you. Feel free to check up on it. Many of my catechism students may remember this particular passage from our senior class. We were listening to a speech by the preacher Vadi Bakaman the question of why I believe the Bible to be true. And there's one passage that he brings forward in particular. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 6. There we read, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So what he pointed out here was, when, when Luke is telling Theophilus in verse 2 of Luke chapter 1 about eyewitnesses, and he says to him in verse 4 that he is writing to him that you may know with certainty those things in which you were instructed. He's giving him information that's falsifiable. 
It's information that can be proved false, that can be checked up on. He's saying, check up on me. There are countless people who saw him over the course of his lifetime, over 500 who saw him after his resurrection. You can ask anyone who was there to see if there's any truth to what I've been saying. This is remarkable, historically speaking, and I want you to take special notice of this. Why? Because Luke knew that he was writing for, wasn't just for Theophilus. He wasn't just writing for Theophilus. There's every evidence that he knew it would be a wider audience. So Luke was throwing down a challenge for every single person to check up on his work, to disprove him, to find an inconsistency between what he wrote and the people who actually observed it. And yet, none was found. Nobody read through this and said, this this isn't an orderly account like you said it is. You, you talk about certainty, but there's no certainty behind parts of this gospel. No, no con- inconsistency was found. No challenge was written. What does this mean for us? Luke was providing an orderly account that was falsifiable, but never proved false. He threw down a gauntlet for people in his time, and no one was able to pick it up. So as we move through the Gospel of Luke over the next number of months, I want you to take special note of that. Recognize how remarkable it is. It's an orderly account collected from eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, written so that those who read it may know with certainty that what's coming to pass in this gospel is true. In history, you can't have any greater stamp of authority on a historical document. There is no other way for a historical document from the ancient world to be possibly proved to be more convincing, more original, and more certain. There are certainly more reasons why we do believe the Bible to be true and why it's convincing. And there's a DVD out in the library there that speaks about more of that at length, which gives quite a few other reasons that I won't be able to get into now. But the simple fact is that it was written at a time that it was falsifiable, that this gauntlet was laid down and never picked up. This provides us with strong proof of Luke as a historical document. That the words found in the Gospel of Luke are trustworthy and true from a human perspective. And this lets us know with certainty the truth of the Gospel message in which we've been instructed. But all of that is from a human perspective. All of that is from somebody who is coming to this with the perspective of, I want to challenge this. Or else I want to know with certainty from my experience that this can be true. We have, as Christians, have a greater hope than that, though. We have a stronger and more certain 
assurance. When we read through the gospel according to Luke, we're not simply reading something that is written with certainty from a historical perspective. We're reading something that is God-breathed. Luke, as with all scriptures, God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. And that, for us, causes a certainty that dwarfs even the historic certainty that we can have. Doesn't this put you in awe of God, brothers and sisters? It makes this gospel certain and true for us. For us, it doesn't matter what the historical accounts might say. People will always be pulling things out of the earth and suggesting this archaeological evidence disproves, and yet finding out later that it actually corroborates Scripture. But for us, we don't need to wait for public opinion to swing one way or another. We can stand on the certainty, on the assurance that this is the Word of God, and that this gospel account that we're getting into is true. Read it as the truth of God, for it's inspired by God. Read this gospel personally as addressed to you. For us, this isn't something that's just an interesting story. It's a true account of Jesus Christ and a message calling you to faith and repentance. So as we move ahead with this gospel over the coming months, remember that and embrace this orderly account, not only as history, but as a true account of Jesus Christ, which is a message calling you to faith and repentance. As he came, Jesus came, he lived and taught and preached on earth. He suffered and he died for us. If you'll believe, he died for you. And now he lives and reigns in heaven over us. You may struggle with this message today, but read this gospel. Let it convince and convict you. Let it speak to you. Don't just take my word or Luke's word. Take God's word. For if you take his word and believe in it and fully believe in him, a whole new world will open to you. A world that begins with Jesus Christ and leads us to eternity. Amen.